I'm I'm Chichin Wanoku. I'm a double bassist, first and foremost, and I am the founder and artistic and executive director of Chineke. Chineke is possibly the world's first, and certainly Europe's first, majority black and ethnically diverse orchestra, classical orchestra, and there's also a junior orchestra. And our motto is championing change and celebrating diversity in classical music. Monday the 21st of November, a classical concert in the Musikgebouw in Eindhoven. That could happen any day in the Musikgebouw, but this is a very special one. Welcome, Chichi Nuanoko. With Chinica Orchestra, you will be performing, but there is also a special message behind that performance. Yes, hello, hello there, and it's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me to have a little chat about our first concert in Eindhoven. So the Chineke Orchestra, we are made up of a majority of black and ethnically diverse musicians. And our mission is to champion change and celebrate diversity in classical music. You, When you see our orchestra, you will know two people sitting next to each other are from the same background. And so there is, you will see every nationality and color and It's it's a wonderful demonstration of how inclusion works, how it can work, how it's positive, and how people from all nations and backgrounds can can enjoy the, our differences and bring them together to make something special. It's unique. And that's not a one-off event, because that is a specialty about your orchestra and, and maybe your drive in life even. Yes, my drive and my life. <laughs> is, that, is that what you said? Yes. Oh, yeah, I think that's I just wanted to check whether that is the case. I take that as a huge compliment because I do have a lot of drive. And, you know, I before I created Chineke, is now seven years old. And I, before Chineke existed, I had had already a 35-year career as a principal double bass player, principal contrabass player. Mm -hmm. Um on the international concert platform. And I was always the only person of color, not only on the stage in the orchestra, but in the whole auditorium usually. And 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 certainly in the repertoire that we played. So one, one of the things that I committed myself to also, as well as trying to diversify the musicians, is also to bring diversity into the music that we play. So from day one, every single concert we play, we play music by black composers and white composers that can share the platform together and complement each other. And they enrich each other actually. And what's been so special about that? I mean, in fact, the overture that we play in Eindhoven is the same piece that we played in our very first concert seven years ago, the um, Samuel Coleridge Taylor Ballad in A minor. It's a glorious piece. It's a real curtain raiser. And when we first started to rehearse this piece seven years ago, all of the players in the orchestra, you know, we, it's funny because when in all of the breaks, the coffee breaks, the lunch breaks, You know, when you get an earworm and you keep on singing a melody over and over and over again, the, the earworm that everyone seemed to have was this little phrase that came out of the ballad in A minor. But the thing is, 
We were thrilled to learn this piece of music by Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, who was half Sierra Leonean, half English. So he was half black, half white. And it was glorious to hear this music and to learn this music. But at the same time, it was really sad for all of us because we felt, why did we never know this music? All of us who've been through conservatoire, university, we've gone into the, into the profession, none of us had ever played a piece of music by him because why? We don't know, because it's glorious music. Yeah, and, and maybe the, the, the naive preconceived idea is that classical music is about composers from Germany, from Italy, from Russia. So the white man from Western Europe. Yes. But it's not. It, it's not, no. And and the thing is, you know, it's we've we've even discovered a wonderful 16th century composer, uh, Vincente Lusitano, who was his mother was a um, from a black African slave, his father was Portuguese. The Portuguese were the first people to go, the first slavers who went into West Africa. So this incredible composer, born in 1520, um, he wrote uh, incredible choral music. And we've we've launched Chineke Voices, and we will have the first recording of the first black, Asian, and ethnically diverse consort of voices and they're singing the, these incredible motets so lusitano wrote a whole set of 20 motets and the archineke voices the first black and asian and ethnically diverse consort of voices have recorded eight motets of lusitano really something to look out for 16th century music and from what we know We think at the moment that Lusitano is the first black composer to have his music published in the 16th century. It's absolutely beautiful, incredibly polyphonic and just exciting. I mean, his, his harmonies for that time in the 16th century were really risky, almost sexy and quite you know, amazing, really. Nobody else was quite writing like that, but absolutely luscious, glorious music. Would it then be fair to say that by having all these players and people in the choir from many different ethnic minorities makes it even more authentic rather than move away from the traditional view that many people have on classical music? Because even the composers were not only the Western Europeans. I know, and the thing is, It's interesting that you say that, that it makes it more authentic, because when we now discover these composers and artists and musicians from the 15th century, the 16th century, what it does for us um, musicians, black musicians, it properly re reinserts us into the industry. So we it confirms that we were always there. We were always involved in classical music because this was one of the things that people used to say to me when I was creating the orchestra. People said, oh, Chichi, it won't work. I mean, it, this is not really your sort of music, is it? It's not really your music. And those those people, those black people who play classical music, they're not very good, are they? I mean, they're not really... Yeah. It sounds a bit like white men should not play jazz. But but that's a very wrong comparison then apparently. I know, but the, you know, white people have come almost completely taken over jazz. 
nowadays, yes. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I found Sheku, for example, and it's Sheku Kane Mason and that family. So right from the beginning, I was finding incredible musicians, young ones as well as older ones. So I created two orchestras at the very beginning. And... Um, I the more when people were trying to say no Chishi don't don't even bother don't tr- even try because it doesn't it won't work you know black pe- it's not really your kind of music and you know what I thought well I'm going to try anyway and the more I looked the more I found the well of talent runs deep amongst black people and they we do the same 10,000 hours of study etc cetera, etc cetera. and but we just don't see so many getting the opportunities. And so I've shone a spotlight. Chinake has spot, we have shone a spotlight on musicians and composers and conductors who previously no one ever knew existed. And there was a void. And now I think, God, how did I not notice this? Or why did I not do something about this before? Because now we have kind of filled a void. Quite interesting. Before this interview, I felt a little bit, would I dare to ask you whether it was a bit out of frustration that you started to organize this because uh, the minorities would not get a place? The story that you now tell is really about, but there is so much history. It is so natural to classical music. Absolutely. I don't really feel frustrated about it. I feel actually excited about all the discoveries. And I think even at my ancient age that I, you know, and I'm kind of, you know, some of my colleagues at Chineke have said, Chichi, why didn't you do this 10 years before? And I said, well, you know, you know, 10 years before, I don't think it would have been accepted. And I just, I'm very instinctive. And 2000, in 2014, that's when I really started to think something needed to happen. And, and so our first concert was in September 2015. Our second concert was September 2016, a year later. And, um, and that was when actually we played the Dvorak Symphony No. 9 the, of the New World. We've only played it once, six years ago. <laughs> so it's, it's really wonderful to visit it again. And in fact, our very first CD, we recorded the, the Dvorak Symphony No. 9 in a live concert from the Royal Festival Hall. We yes. may talk more about the Vorschach because that's exactly what you're playing in Eindhoven. But you yes. said 10 years ago it may not have worked. What has yes. changed since then? Is that more attention to diversity or...? Well, I, I think things were beginning to... I think people were starting to think about things. And, but, you know, I... You know, one of the things when people... When people asked me, Chichi, why didn't you think about doing it in 2004, you know, or 2005? Why did you wait until 2015? And, you know, of course, I always knew I was ethnically and color wise. I was always the odd one out in the in the stage, in the orchestra. But I did not I did not have a conversation about it with all of my white colleagues. And and when I ask myself now, why did I not have this conversation? I think, I, I never had a black colleague to talk to about it. And so uh, I all my years of my career, I was busy 
you know, raising my children, having a career and trying to stay on top of my game so I could continue with my career. And I was, I realized I did not get into a conversation about this because I did not know what people thought and I did not want to have a conversation with people who were, who were perhaps just tolerating my presence. You know, I, I don't think I could cope with that. And so I did not want to get into a, discuss, a, a bad discussion about things because, and I didn't want to come across as being defensive or paranoid. So it was easier for me not to have the conversation. So I didn't have the conversation until I had been on some boards. I was on the Association of British Orchestras board. In fact, I was the, and the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. I was on that board as well. And on each of those boards, I was the first musician to be on those boards. It's usually the chief executives of orchestras, big orchestras are on those boards. And so it was around those board tables that I was hearing people talking about diversity and the lack of diversity. And when they talked about it, everyone looked at me. <laughs> so I'm thinking, why are you all looking at me? <laughs> you know, and because you are the only diverse person, but that built also the confidence to start doing it. Well, it made me think, uh, and then government started to call me in, you know, the previous culture minister, Ed Vasey. And You know, because when I go to orchestra rehearsals and concerts, the, the players in the orchestra are not talking about it, but the managements and administration and government were beginning to talk about it. So I'm thinking, wow, if the Conservative Party um, are talking about, we need to do something about diversity, Chichi, what can you do to help us? I'm thinking, wow, if this party is talking about it, This has gone mainstream. Maybe I could do something about it. And then I saw the Kinshasa Orchestra from the Congo performing in London. It was their 20th anniversary. I didn't realize a concert, an orchestra like that existed. And that was my light bulb. Yeah. Then still there is a big step between talking about it and starting an orchestra. You must yeah. find the musicians. Was there yeah. enough talent or what was the talent in fact, hidden because they didn't get a chance before? Yes, mostly, mostly hidden. And, you know, I mean, when, 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 when you think of people like Sheikh Ukani Mason, the cellist, you can see that talent miles away. You know, um, he didn't have to prove it. He didn't have to try very hard to convince me. You But know? how come that he wasn't recognized before well, that? He was, he was only 16 years old. In our first concert, he was 16. He was the principal cello of the Chineke Junior Orchestra, but he also played number four cello in the professional orchestra because he was more than good enough. <laughs> He's an incredible cellist, you know, and and all of his siblings were playing in the junior orchestra. And, and I was finding all these musicians who I never knew, professionals and juniors who were, well, the professionals were people who were just trying to get extra work. I think I could count on one hand how many of those professionals actually had experienced having a job, which is quite shocking. Yes, I'm silent quite about shocking. that. I Although mean, they, they went through their education, they have absolutely. seen how that whole process goes and then not absolutely. being able to... Out, yes, outstanding players. You know, there's no reason why they shouldn't have a job. It's just wrong. But we all know that, you know, music is so subjective and that, you know, whether you're white, brown, 
or black or yellow or red or green. And you go to conservatoire and you graduate with the highest first class honors. There is no guarantee that you're going to have a, a, a career in the music industry. Maybe an interesting comparison then. You are, have a lot of drive. You talk about this in a very enthusiastic way. You put people on stage. Or you could have gone, let's say, promoting blind auditions. And I think yeah. this, what you're doing right now, may work much better because you get the excitement, you get the vibe rather than some kind of process of, of, of hiring people. Yes. Well, I, people do do auditions now, but they're not blind. And, you know, because... The reason why people have blind auditions, it's because to save them being prejudiced in some way towards either women or disabled or black or Asian, they're trying to say that we are, we're choosing them only for the talent. And I used to think that that was quite a good thing to do to have blind auditions. Um, but now I kind of think, Because some of my colleagues who have won a job from a blind audition, some of these, a couple of orchestras, some of the orchestras in America do blind auditions until there's one person left. And that one person is given the job. Now, all of my black colleagues who have a job in American orchestras, that's how they won the job without being seen. Now, We've had a few situations where when that black person then takes up their position in the orchestra, they find they're not only the first black person in that orchestra, they are the only black person in that orchestra. And some of them have been made to feel extremely unwelcome. Some have been in danger of their lives, have been threatened, have been stalked and some terrible things have happened and sometimes in the end that person leaves the black person will leave the organization because of the way they're treated and so what we need to do is develop the culture within the organization don't just bring in a black person and expect that everything's going to work because historically they've been excluded And so, and as a black person, as black people, we don't want to be given a job because of the color of our skin. We just want the opportunity to show you that we can do the job. And then it's wonderful that you're really showing that, that with a full yeah. orchestra that is very diverse, you can play wonderful music, you can play music in a wonderful way. What are you going to play? You already mentioned Dvorak. But that is yeah. still, let's say, uh, not too much a minority, although it was not yeah. immediately accepted in the US, I think, when he started to compose his kind of music. Well, I mean, he, his sto the story of that piece is incredible. It's an incredible story. You know, he was invited to the USA because this, I can't remember the woman's name. She created the first conservatoire in Manhattan. And she invited... You know, they they did not have a culture of Western, of classical music in America then. And he was probably one of the most famous living classical composers at that time. They invited Dvorak to come from Czechoslovakia, as it was called then, um, to be the principal of the, of the new conservatoire. 
And he came, he brought his family, his wife, his children. And then the principal said, you know, we would like you, we want to commission you to, to write a symphony. We want you to write a symphony that gives us our American sound um, because we don't have an American sound. I mean, if you listen to Beethoven or Wagner, you know you're in Germany. If, or Bach, you know, you, you know you're in Germany. If you listen to Mozart and you know you're in Austria, if you listen to well, Handel, or um, if you listen to Rossini, you know you're in Italy, and you know all these, Elgar, you know you're in England. America did not have their own sound, and so they asked Wojak to write something, to rep and then he said, I need to go and listen to your country, and he traveled, he went down south, he went all over the place, and of course he was inspired by the black slaves on the plantations singing their spirituals, and the native indigenous Americans, the Indian. Well, they call them Indians, but they're not really Indians, but the Native Americans. When he came back to New York and he wrote this symphony, he was, he was also guided by Harry T. Burley, um, this composer, this black composer who was based in New York as well, who guided him with the spirituals and things like that. And then he wrote the symphony of the new world. The new world was America and said, this is the sound of your country. Or, and it's all based on a pentatonic scale, as we know. Yeah, and it is more or less the highlight. Eh? It's uh, yes. the, the, the last piece that you will play. It's uh, yes. maybe something that most of the people in Eindhoven will already know. Sure the other do. composers, maybe yes. a bit less. So we, open, we open with Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, the ballad in A minor, He was a young composer when he wrote this in his 20s, and he was he had shortly left studying at the Royal College of Music. He was, it was at the time, Elgar was much older than him. Elgar and was well already a famous household name. Elgar was given a commission by the Three Choirs Festival. This festival still exists in England. Elgar was too busy to write a piece for this commission. So he suggested, he said, why don't you give this commission to arguably probably the most talented young composer in England today, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. And so he wrote this piece, it's 13 minutes long and it's it's glorious. Um, and, and so uh, he went on to much greater things and he died sadly very, very young at the age of 37. We've just signed a new contract with Decca Records, and we've our first album with Decca is all Coleridge Taylor, and it's not only Samuel Coleridge Taylor, but his daughter Avril Coleridge Taylor. Nobody knows her music because none of it was published, none of it was recorded. So we were the first orchestra to play it, and so there's a beautiful piece of hers on that double album. So, and then we also play this work by George Walker, the African-American composer who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1996 for, he was the first African, black American to win a Pulitzer Prize for music. And he won the prize for a piece called Lilacs that we played in the BBC proms this year. If he was alive today, he would be 100 years old this year. And in 19, sorry, in 2017, just before Chineke was two years old, 
we got our first BBC prom and I met George Walker. I, I programmed this piece of music by him, the lyric for strings that we're playing in Eindhoven. And it's a beautiful piece. It's, it's a piece, it's only about seven minutes long, nine minutes long. It, it was originally from a string quartet that he wrote when his grandmother died. And then soon after she died, he, Martin Luther King was murdered. And he expanded the slow movement of this quartet for a full string orchestra. So that's what we're playing. He was 95 when we played his piece in the BBC proms. And he said to me, Chichi, it was my lifetime's dream to have a piece of my music performed at the BBC proms. He was 95. I think he deserved it. Yeah. And then also played and then by an orchestra of color. And, 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 and an orchestra like us playing mm -hmm. it. It was televised and it became the most viewed concert in the history of the proms. So and then and then we play this wonderful concerto, the first concerto in one movement by Florence B. Price. She was a contemporary actually of people like Coleridge Taylor, I think. Yeah, and William Grant still. And, you know, she lived through the, the Jim Crow era in America, terrible, terrible time. And she was a pianist as well as a composer. And she wrote this, she calls it concerto in one movement, but actually there's three quite distinct parts, fast, slow, fast. And it's, I think it's wonderful. It's a beautiful piece. And Jennifer, she's she's Sheik, who's one of his younger sisters, actually. She's played it with us. She played it with us last year at the BBC Proms. And we recorded it the year before with, with her. But we're going to make a fresh recording that we're going to launch next March. Wonderful music soon yeah. in the Musikgebouw. Yes. Also music that was heard on the Proms with a very enthusiastic uh, orchestra with uh, Chichi Nuanoko. Thank you very much for sharing all your thoughts and your ideas and your drive behind this performance with us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank, thank you very much. Design, lifestyle, technology and innovation. More on podcasts for Brainport. Radio.